Turn with me in Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at the first 31 verses this morning. Going to be looking at marriage, faith as a child, and riches being a stumbling block between us and, and the Lord. So would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come and spend time in your word. We're thankful for it. We're thankful for you in our lives. We're asking that you would do what's impossible for us, that you would touch marriages. I pray for those that are in a difficult place, Lord, those that are in a good place and somewhere in between, that you would take your word and plant it deep into our hearts as husbands and wives. Lord, for those that will be married in the future, that you would use your word to prepare them for marriage. God, that you would encourage singles, that you would move us into a deeper faith, faith like a child. Also, that we wouldn't allow material things to keep us from following you. So we invite you into this service. Pray that you'd bless our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. All things possible. Really? Is that statement true uh, across the board? Would you say that all things are possible for our government? Probably not. Okay. Would you say all things are possible for you as a family? If you just took your family, your immediate family, would all things be possible? For us as a church family, would we say, yeah, all things are possible for for Rocky Mountain Calvary? No. The key to that phrase, all things possible, is with God. Jesus says, with God, all things are possible. Apart from God, that's not the case. But with him, all things are possible. Last night when I was driving to to church for the Saturday night service, there was a beautiful sunset. Maybe you caught it last night. Beautiful winter sunset where God just put all kinds of crazy colors up into the sky with the backdrop of Pikes Peak. It, It was beautiful. He's the creator, and in a moment, he can speak those things into existence. So nothing is too difficult for him. Also, he's our savior, God in human flesh, crucified, risen from the dead. He's the God of the resurrection. He's defeated sin and death. Nothing is impossible for the Lord. So we're going to see that in three different areas, three different categories, that with God, all things are possible in marriage. I'm sure there's different places that marriages are in this morning. Maybe you say, I'm not married. This message isn't for me. Well, someday you may be married. You may be surprised. Maybe if you go through your life being single, it's still important to understand God's design for marriage. We're going to see in faith that all things are possible as we'll trust as as a child. Also, all things are possible in salvation. God has a way of breaking down those things that we put in front of him, those false gods, those, those idols. So verse 1 of chapter 10. Then he arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. Judea is southern Israel, leaving the Galilee region where he spent so much time of his ministry. This is now east of Jerusalem, the other side of the Jericho River. And multitudes gathered to him again, And as he was accustomed, he taught them again. Christ had a wonderful, beautiful, powerful custom that whenever people were gathered, he used that opportunity to teach. He used that opportunity to share the word. There was no question what Christ was going to do as these groups have been gathered around him. But in the backdrop, you'll often find 
the Pharisees. The Pharisees came and asked him, saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. Pharisees have already put a plan in motion to try to kill Christ. They're looking for material to be able to entrap him. These are my least favorite types of questions. I like genuine, honest questions. I think you do as well. Up for any genuine, honest question. I've been thinking about this. I've been wrestling with this. But I don't really appreciate or enjoy a question just for the sake of argument or for the sake of trying to entrap you in your words. Maybe you encounter some of these type of questions like, did Adam have a belly button? They're saying, I'm not sure if I want to believe in God or not, depending on if Adam had a belly button. Who cares whether Adam had a belly button or not? Maybe you've heard this one. Can God create a rock so big that he can't lift it? Really? You're going to spend your time wrestling with that? You know? Those aren't really normally genuine, honest questions. And the Pharisees, they're not really concerned about divorce. They're not really concerned about marriage. They just want to catch Jesus in his words. In verse 3, And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? Christ is so wise, he answers a question with a question. Knowing that the Pharisees looked to the law, looked to Moses, what did Moses say about this subject? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. Moses had permitted the children of Israel to divorce. And Jesus answered and said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. So why did Moses allow divorce? It was because of the hardness of heart. If you're taking notes this morning or praying these things through with me, the first thing I want you to write down is this. Fight the enemy and embrace God's design. In marriage, fight the enemy and embrace God's design. You may be asking, what's the enemy to your marriage? It's not Satan, first and foremost. You know what it is? It's our own hardness of heart. That is the greatest enemy to our marriage. That's something we don't really want to look at. We want to say, well, this is more something that has to do with Satan than it has to do with me. But ultimately, we can cause more damage than in our marriages than anyone else. And what gets people to the place of filing for divorce, Jesus says, is because of hardness of heart. That's the enemy. That's the enemy that we have to fight inside of our marriage. Bitterness wants to come in the back door. You get offended. You get hurt by your spouse over a period of time. Expectations aren't met. You didn't think that you would be treated this way. And it's very silent, but before you know it, that bitterness starts to harden, to calcify the heart. This may be a newsflash for some, but you're a sinner. You came to church this morning to hear it from the pastor. Yep, you're a sinner. And guess what? You married a sinner. I should bring that into marriage ceremonies when I do weddings. All right, guys. I just want you to know you're a sinner and you're a sinner. Right? So what happens when two sinners get married? A lot of time God blesses them with children who are also sinners. So you have a family of sinners together. Every family, every marriage. What's going to take place? There's going to be Sin, there's going to be offense, there's going to be hurt, there's going to be let down. How do you handle that? You're going to go through that in your marriage. You already have. The key is forgiveness. 
There's a marriage class that we offer here at the church called The Art of Marriage. And there's a quote by Paul David Tripp. And he says, the gospel is all about fresh starts and new beginnings. The gospel is all about fresh starts and new beginnings. Present tense in our relationship with the Lord, he continues to give us fresh starts and new beginnings as his children. To the point where every morning there's mercies that are new. We're that sinful. He's like, Eric, you need fresh new mercy for today. Wouldn't it be great if we adopted that as the atmosphere of our marriage? I'm going to wake up every day receiving God's grace and his mercy and then extending that to my spouse. It's a choice to choose to forgive. God has so freely forgiven me. Does God ever get to the point where he's like, Eric, you kind of pushed it too far. I'm not going to forgive you anymore. You've offended me too much. You don't appreciate me. He could, if he wanted to. He's got more than enough material. But the sacrifice of his son is enough. The penalty that Christ has paid is enough for the father to look at the sacrifice of the son and say, I'm forgiving you not because of your sake, but because of what Christ has done. And we do the same for our spouse. Because of Christ, because of his sacrifice. Could it be this morning that God wants to soften our hearts towards our spouse? Do you need your heart softened? Maybe you're well into the offense, well into the bitterness. It's years now. Could it be that God could soften your heart? Well, with God, all things are possible, amen? So God could come and speak to your heart in this moment, and he could soften your heart. Maybe things aren't going bad. But you find yourself just starting to distance yourself from your spouse a bit. May the Lord soften your heart. If you're you're single and you're preparing to be married or you think that you'll be married someday, be realistic about your expectations as understand that you will be sinned against and you will sin against your spouse. And forgiveness is such an important part of that relationship going forward in the future. So fight the enemy, which is that hardness of heart. How do you fight the enemy? is through extending forgiveness, but also embrace God's design. Jesus goes on to tell us what his design for marriage is. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. We're going to look at several things of God's design. And the first is that Jesus says is there's diversity in his design. It's God's definition of marriage. This is really important. Marriage is his creation. It's his institution. In the beginning... God created them, male and female. And in God's design, there is diversity. And you might be saying, where is he going with this? Diversity inside of marriage, male and female. That's the diversity, okay? So marriage is not whatever you want to define it as, whatever culture wants to define it as. God says marriage is a man married to a woman, a male married to a female in a lifelong commitment. And that's where we find the diversity. Male and female are extremely different, aren't they? God's blessed me with three daughters and one son. Our son is the youngest. And we have discovered that boys and girls are very different to the glory of God, right? There are things happening in our house like camo and toy guns and trucks And prior, it was pink, dolls, and teacups, and those types of things. The kids were little. You listen to the girls play in their room, and there's lots of talking. 
You listen to Wyatt play in his room, and there's lots of noises. (laughs) Bang. God says, oh, I got a good plan. These boys are going to grow up. These girls are going to grow up. Little boys grow up. Little girls grow up. And they get married, right? Male and female. Men and women joined together. You know, husbands and wives, how different you are as men and women, don't you? You ever ask God, why are we so different? Because it causes us to love each other. It causes us to grow in unconditional love to to one another. Now, here's the key. Here's the key of this in God's design. For you to experience the fullness of your marriage, men, is to embrace biblical manhood. You're created a man by God. Embrace it. Don't apologize it. Look to see what that means inside of Scripture. Women, embrace biblical womanhood. This is what God has designed for you. It's not a battle of the sexes. It's not that men are greater or women are greater. But I think the greater thing that we face today, even than the battle of the sexes, is the neutralization of gender. Where culture and society is saying, gender doesn't even exist. So let's just go completely neutral in gender. Well, that's not God's design. God's design is to bring men and women together to complete one another. It's a good design. It's not competition, but completing one another. So God in his infinite wisdom said this at the beginning of his word. God created them male and female. It's one of the first things that he says in Genesis. He knew that we would test this. It's obvious. Adam and Eve are different. But yet God records it for us because it's under attack. We go on in verse 7. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The second part of God's design is priority. Leave your father and mother and be joined to your wife. The greatest human relationship now is your spouse. Leave and cleave. This should happen at the beginning of a marriage. But if it's never happened in your marriage, it's not too late to start. And this is something that we continually do throughout our marriages. If you're not prepared to do this and you're single, you probably shouldn't be getting married. How does this look like? What does this practically look like? Well, you should be going to your spouse first before you go to your parents or a close friend. If something exciting happens in your life, who do you text and who do you call first? It should be your spouse, not your mom. Write that down. It should be your spouse, not your mom. Okay? You call your spouse. You're like, hey, guess what happened? This is incredible. Or you get some bad news. You reach out to your spouse. Then call your friend. Then call your parents. But you're showing that this is the greatest human relationship. You want your spouse to be your best friend over all other relationships. So that means that's where we invest first. That's where we pour out first. Let's go there. Come on. It's the holidays. There's some decisions on where you're going to spend Christmas with extended family, in-laws, all those type of things. And who are you looking to please in that discussion? Your parents or your spouse? The biblical answer is your spouse. That's who you're looking to please in that discussion is to say, how do I serve my spouse? How do I connect with my spouse in the midst of this? How do we come together to form a decision on where we're going to spend the holidays. I just saved you a lot of trouble right there, all right? 
You have to cut the cord of dependency. This is finances. It's not healthy inside of a marriage for a husband and wife to be depending upon mom and dad for the finances. Now there's times where difficult things happen and it may be necessary to rely upon mom and dad, but it's not a lifestyle. It's important to say we're independent. God has made us our own unit. Lord, would you provide for us? So if you're planning to be married, plan for it financially to where you can cut that cord of dependency and rely upon the Lord and each other. Leave and cleave. It happens at the ceremony, but it continues to happen. Maybe it's not your parents really that are infringing on this, but it's a close friend. You would really say, my friend bucket is filled through somebody else prior other than my spouse. You want to work on that. You want to say, no, I want my best friend to be my spouse. So does this mean you don't have a relationship with your parents? Some of you are going, yes. No, that's not what it means. You're to honor your, your father and mother. It's just a matter of priority. And as you have put your spouse first, then you invest in relationship with your parents and friendships. Goes on in verse 8, And the two shall become one flesh, so they're no longer two, but one flesh. God's design is unity, one flesh. This is incredible. You got two individuals that come into a, a ceremony, and they leave one There's nothing like this in all of scripture. There's no other relationships that's like this. When God looks down at married couples, he does not see two individuals, but he sees one flesh. So this type of unity really affects how we do marriage. We're fighting the enemy, we're fighting a hard heart, but we're embracing the design. We're saying, I'm no longer an individual, but I'm one flesh with the spouse that God has blessed me with. So we seek to make decisions spiritually together. How, what would be a spiritual decision? Where you go to church. That should be a decision that you make together as you seek God's direction. How the kids are invested in spiritually, you make that together. Financial decision, it shouldn't be his and hers. It shouldn't be, well, okay, he gets his way on this decision, she gets her way on that decision. But it's a we decision, How does God want us to handle these financial decisions? There's no longer just a me decision. It's always a a we and a unity that God brings and God provides. God in such a powerful way has brought couples together in one flesh. That's expressed in the sexual union that God has designed. One flesh. The result of that intimacy is children. One flesh. 23 chromosomes from dad, 23 chromosomes from mom. Little one fleshes walking around, okay? Oh, she's got mom's nose, but dad's eyes and mom's ears and dad's hands. And it's this beautiful mixture of mom and dad that has has come together. Unity, so important. Invest in and protect that unity. It's God's design. In verse 9, Therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. Another part of God's design is mystery. Mystery. It says God has joined together. We feel so in charge of our marriages, don't we? We feel so independent that we chose our spouse. God really didn't have much to do with it. But the Lord says here in his word that he has joined together. He's into marriages. He attends marriages. He, he attends marriage ceremonies and he's, he's joining husbands and wives together. It's not really the pastor. It's not the parents. It's not the friends. 
It's him. You're going, yeah, this is good. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. And he blesses it and he joins together. Have you ever viewed your marriage in God's design from his mystery? What I mean by mystery is his hand of how he brought you together with your spouse. And at this point you're saying, come on, come on. We weren't even believers. I don't even want to tell you how we met. It wasn't pretty, right? We didn't glorify God in how we started. We didn't know better. God in his infinite wisdom was saying, my hand was in that, and I joined the two of you together. Some of you may be looking over your shoulder at your past going, I'm not sure I'm supposed to be married to this person. Stop it. You are supposed to be married to them. It was God's hand. He joined you together. Well, if I, I wouldn't have picked this person, knowing what I know now. What's God's mission in marriage. It's to sanctify us, to make him more like him. It's exactly who God wants you to be married to. Aren't you thankful that his hand is in the joining together of marriage? I think it's really foundational of how we see marriage if we believe that God has joined us together. Don't you? So the last thing that we see of God's design is longevity. It says, let no man separate. Don't let anybody pull apart. And what Jesus is doing here is he's answering the question about divorce. He's saying, you know, divorce isn't my ultimate plan or will. Don't, don't let someone separate a couple because I've brought them together. How do you separate one flesh? It's very difficult, isn't it? It's very, very painful. Why does God say in the Old Testament that he hates divorce? It's not a condemning statement, but he's saying, I hate what it does to people that I love. It destroys them. It pulls them apart. We don't live in a culture of longevity, do we? We don't stay in jobs very long, generally. We don't stay in homes very long. We're constantly moving from one thing to the next, and we can treat marriage like that. Almost like a glorified dating relationship. As long as this works for me, I'm going to stay in it. But if it doesn't work for me, I'm going to move on. And God says, no, I want to call you to be committed to each other till death do you part. My mom always described it this way. This summer, they'll be celebrating their 45th wedding anniversary. My mom was 19. My dad was 20 when they got married. They met in high school. My dad failed Spanish, so he had to retake it. And that's how he met my mom in a small town in, in Washington State in the Northwest. So they Started dating at 15, and my dad was 16, 45 years of marriage. They weren't saved when they got married, got, got saved in their early 20s. And she'd always say, we don't discuss divorce. Divorce is never an option. And when we got married, we wallpapered the door shut, the exit. We committed to each other for, for life based on their commitment to the Lord. And I've kind of expounded on that illustration. If you think about the exit to your marriage, you not only wallpaper it shut, but you get some brick and mortar, put some concrete there, you say, that's not an option. And my heart and my mind and my conversations, no matter what comes up, we're committed to each other, and let's invest here. Culture says the grass is greener on the other side. God says the grass is greener where you water it. Isn't that how your yard works? So invest in your marriage. Commit to your marriage. Maybe you haven't committed to your marriage. 
and you've been married a long time, but in the back of your heart and your mind, you've always kept your options open. You've always left that back door open. God has called us to longevity in our marriages. Verses 10 through 12. In the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. They had more questions about marriage and divorce. So he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Disciples were really astonished by Christ's teaching about marriage and divorce. So this then raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? And some of you say, well, man, I'm divorced. Where, where does that leave me? And I do believe there's grace and there's forgiveness in divorce. To be able to go, well, what was my part in it? And maybe for some of you, you chose it. And you go, man, I know my heart was hard. I, I was the one who left the marriage. I was the one who committed adultery. Some of you may say, I fought for my marriage and my spouse, my spouse left me. And I do think that God's heart through the cross and what he's done is for you to be able to move forward. And God is a God of, of restoration. Now, having said that, if you are married, don't use God's grace as a license to then go, well, I'll get divorced and God's a God of grace. He'll, he'll restore. In essence, that's like saying, well, I'm just going to throw myself in front of a semi-truck and take the damage. And I know that there's good hospitals here in Colorado Springs. It'd be better to not throw yourself in front of the truck. Is God a God of restoration? Does he build up and when there's divorce? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that we then justify just, just running into a divorce or planning out a, a divorce. Also, Jesus expounds on this more in Matthew's gospel and he says where there's sexual immorality, that is a reason for divorce. God can restore even when there's sexual immorality. We see God doing that in our church, but if a husband or a wife continues to live in unrepentant sexual sin, that's not an environment for a relationship to be able to, to flourish. Verse 13, we get the second scene and its children and a lesson we learn from children. Then they brought little children to him that he may touch them, but the disciples rebuked those who brought them. These parents have small children and they're wanting Jesus to pray for and bless their kids. But the disciples say, no, he doesn't have time for you. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for such is the kingdom of God. Jesus is welcoming the kids. And he's saying, these kids have something to offer you. Such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever doesn't receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and he blessed them. So the first lesson was fight the enemy, embrace God's design in marriage. The second lesson is trust God fully as a child. Jesus says, if you don't have childlike faith, you're not going to enter into the kingdom. Why? Because faith is seen so clearly in the heart of a young child. Does a, does a young child doubt whether mom and dad are going to feed them? Does an infant doubt whether mom's going to feed her? Kids open their refrigerator believing that there's going to be food in there. They trust it. They don't doubt it. They don't go to bed wondering, I wonder if I'm going to get fed in the morning. 
If you tell them something, they believe it. It's the beauty of a, of a child. If you wanted to play a trick on a child, which would be pretty twisted if you did, but you could tell a young child that green is actually blue. They're looking at green and you're like, isn't blue so beautiful? And they could grow up thinking that green is blue. Now you're sick if you do that. You know, you need help if you do that, right? But they would trust you and they would believe you. For years now, I've seen young kids on on this stage, mine included, usually dad, sometimes mom, standing there. And what do they do? They jump off the stage, complete glee on their face, absolute trust that mom and dad's going to catch them. No doubt that mom and dad's going to catch them. Maybe you've had this experience at work where someone has a great idea that there's going to be team building. It's a development day. What do they do during team building? Inevitably, they say, stand up on the table, get blindfolded, go backwards, and do the trust fall. And all your coworkers are linking arms. And you're thinking, I'm not doing this. You're going, there's no way that I'm going to do this. There's no way that they're, they're going to catch me. Why? Because we don't have the kind of trust as adults, do we? God says, I want you to trust me fully as a child. Believe me. Take me at my word. This is the way that we're saved and the way that we continue with the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Verse 17, now as he was going on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? We know from the other gospels that this man was young and he was rich and he was a ruler. Has everything going for him from the world's perspective. He has his youth. He's got his position. He's a ruler and he's got his possessions. He's got his money. And he's saying, good teacher, what must I do? Notice he's looking to himself, his own works, in order to earn salvation. So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. Jesus isn't denying that he's good, but he is saying, because I'm good, that makes me God. And there's only one that's good, and that doesn't include you. So he wants this young man to realize his sin and to realize the goodness of God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother, And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from from my youth. Jesus emphasizes the Ten Commandments and specifically Commandments 6 through 10 that have to do with the way that we treat others. This young man says, Look, I have done all this from, from my youth. Jesus then identifies what's lacking. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack... Go your way, sell whatever you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. Christ knows us and is very good at identifying that one thing that's a stumbling block that's keeping us from following Christ. It's keeping us from receiving grace and salvation. This young man thinks he can earn salvation. What can I do in order to to be saved? I've kept all of these commands, but he's failed to realize the beginning of the Ten Commandments. Where God writes in Exodus 20, you shall have no other gods before me. His money, his possessions had actually become 
a false god to him. So what does Jesus do? He says, I want you to sell it. Get rid of all your stuff and come follow me. Take up your cross and follow me and you will have treasure in heaven. I bet for most of us, when you came and received Christ as your savior, you knew that things were going to change and that was part of the wrestling. He's going to receive you just as you were, just as you are, but then he's going to say, now this is an area of your life I want to work on. Maybe it was a relationship. Maybe it was drugs. Maybe it was excessive use of alcohol. Maybe it was your temper. I don't know if I want to receive Christ because I know he's going to put his finger on this one thing in my life. Verse 22, but he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Oh, what a bummer. How tragic. He missed out on following Christ. He missed out on the greatest treasure. We don't know how he responds later. He could have rethought this and taken Jesus up at the offer. But at this moment, he says, no, this is making me extremely sad because he had a lot of possessions. There's something about possessions, if we're not careful, that causes us to get attached to them, isn't it? Where we then begin to ask this question, you know, do I own the house or does the house own me? Do I own the car or does the car own me? Does this position, this job that God has provided, is it, do I hold it open-handed or has it begun to possess me? In verse 23, then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying riches can be a stumbling block to prevent someone from receiving salvation. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Why are they astonished? Because their worldview, the way they saw riches, that riches were evidence of your love for God. So if you loved God and you had faith, then you had riches. So when Jesus says actually riches is a stumbling block for people entering the kingdom, the disciples are like, what? This is completely different than the way we have thought about this. This is a paradigm shift for us. Jesus explains this more. Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus gets to the heart of the issue. The problem isn't with the riches. The problem is with the trust. Are we trusting in the riches? Are we trusting in the possessions? Are we trusting in the living God? Jesus says if someone's trusting in money, then it's difficult for them to come into the kingdom and trust God. And verse Timothy 6, verse 17, 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, it says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches. Don't we know that riches are uncertain? They get wings and fly away pretty easily. But in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Don't trust in riches. Trust in the living God who's given you all things to enjoy. So there's not anything inherently evil about riches or about the possessions. God says enjoy it and be a cheerful giver. But be careful that you're not trusting in it. Verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? If it's difficult for the rich to be saved, then then who can be saved? And we get to our key verse, but Jesus looked at them 
and said, with men, it's impossible. It's impossible for rich to trust Christ for salvation. It's impossible for people to be saved. But with God, but not with God, for with God, all things are possible. Thankfully, nothing is impossible for God. So this is what we come to our third key point this morning, is allow God to remove anything that keeps us from him. God is able to knock down the idol of money. He's able to knock down these false gods that keep us from coming to the Lord. Salvation is his ability. Salvation is his goodness. With God, nothing is impossible. Maybe you think God can't save you. Oh, he can save you. Maybe you have somebody on your list that has not been so nice. They've been naughty instead of nice. And you're checking it twice. And in your heart of hearts, you're saying, I don't know if God can save them. Nothing's impossible with God. They're so into their money. I can't see them ever getting their head out of their riches to look to Jesus Christ. Or they're so into this, they're so into that. God's able to save them. God's able to knock down those things that are hindrances to cause them to come to Christ. Then Peter began to say, see, we have left all and followed you. Peter's like, well, what's in it for us? We, we've, we've followed you. Jesus answers and said, assuredly, I say to you, there's no one who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution. It's not going to be easy. And in the age to come, eternal life. Reward here in this life and reward in eternal life. You can't outgive God. It's the law of reward. You'll never regret following the Lord. You'll never regret making sacrifices to fulfill the Great Commission, to share the love of Jesus Christ with others. The essence of these verses are saying it's going to be worth it. It's going to be difficult, but it's going to be worth it. You're going to see God move, and God's going to bless in amazing ways. I don't believe verses 29 and 30 are negating our responsibility as spouses and parents. We know what Christ said at the beginning of this chapter about, about marriage. He wants marriage to last. So it's not that we're saying, well, I'm going to just leave my spouse forever because I'm out in other lands for the gospel's sake. There may be moments of sacrifice, but there's also an investment in marriage and children if God has blessed you with that. And we end with verse 31, but many who are first will be last and the last first. The rich young ruler, he's first. His Twitter account, he's got a lot of followers. His Facebook account, a lot of people like his posts. He's got the job. He's got the possessions. He's first. The disciples, they're last. These guys are crazy. They walked away from businesses and different things and have left all to follow Christ. And Jesus says, the last will be first and the first will be last. All right, you guys up for something before we go? We're going to do a checkup. Sounds scary, doesn't it? You go to the doctor for a checkup. Get your oil changed. They do a 24-point diagnostic checkup on your car. 
I get nervous when I take one of our vehicles in for the oil change. It's like, what are they going to find? Right? I just want my oil changed. Don't even tell me. If you find something, I don't even want to know. Well, let's do a checkup in these areas. A checkup in marriage. Where are you at? For real, this morning. Where are you at in your marriage? Don't make assumptions. Don't feel like you've arrived. Don't get to the place of hopelessness. Saying there's no road forward. With God, all things are possible. You're responsible for you. Your heart. Well, I'm waiting for my spouse's heart to soften. Good luck. It's first and foremost about being right with God. Right now, cry out to him, God, would you soften my heart? The gospel's about fresh starts and new beginnings. May the God of the resurrection breathe life into your heart and give you a softness towards your spouse. All the marriage classes in the world, counseling, books, will be ineffective without a soft heart. Those tools can be extremely profitable with a soft heart. But without it, it's not going to go anywhere. God can do great things. He's for your marriage. We're for your marriage. In this area of faith, let's do a checkup. Did you kind of scoff at childlike faith? I don't want that. I'm beyond that. I've grown past childlike faith. Well, God valued it. He says there's something to learn from children. Trust him fully and completely. Whether you understand it or not. Okay, Lord, I trust you. I trust you at your word. You're faithful. With you, nothing's impossible. The last checkup is maybe the most difficult. Is there something that's more important to me than God? If God put his finger and said, this has got to go. Not something that's innately sinful, but something that we've put into a place of worship instead of God, like this rich young ruler, what would we say? Would we say, okay, Lord, this is difficult, but okay. Or would we walk away like the rich young ruler and say, I can't give up that. I can't put that upon the altar. I can't surrender that to you. Would you stand with me and let's, let's pray together. Father, this morning we receive your word. That with you, nothing is impossible. We ask that you would really speak to us, really move us. We pray for every marriage, that you would strengthen it, that you would protect it, you would soften hearts, that we could embrace your design in a way that we've never done before. May we trust you as a child, the beautiful and real and sincere faith of a child. May that be true in us. And God, if there's something that we are holding on to tightly, like the rich young ruler, would you identify that in us as well? 